Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for singing and reading and praying and fellowship. These things are a bomb to our soul. Even as we have just sung, we come in from, we come into worship from this world and we come thirsty, hungry, longing for something satisfying. We come weary, broken, desiring peace and seeking rest. And we find it in Christ. We find it in His Word. We find it in fellowship and worship. And for those of us who are weary and broken, hurting, hungry, here's our hope. And for those of us who don't necessarily feel that way this morning, the reality is we are. We're all hungering for something. And that something is a someone and the someone is you. And so would you feed all of us this morning by your word? Would you give us encouragement? Would you give us hope? Would you give us transformation into this word and by this word? And we pray this morning as well, not just for our own needs. We pray for two in our church body who are hurting today. Uh, pray for Ron Belden who went to the ER early this morning with some symptoms of heart discomfort. Would you give the doctors wisdom as they minister to him? And uh, thank you that the symptoms were not worse than they were. Thank you that it appears to be very hopeful and simple. Um, but we pray for clarity and for your provision for, uh, for Ron and that you would comfort and strengthen and uh, embolden both him and Linda as they walk through this circumstance, whatever it is. And then we pray as well for Brian Muirhead and thank you for his faithful ministry to his father. And we pray for your comfort for him as he grieves the death of his father at 3.30 this morning. And uh, his father lived a full life. There's no complaint with the years. You gave him 97. That's a very full life. And we thank you for Brian's faithful ministry to his dad and how he cared well for him and particularly how he cared for him with the gospel. And we thank you that in the last two to three years, it seems that there has been a movement from darkness to light in his father's life. And that's your grace and mercy. And we trust that even now his father is in the kingdom of God, in the presence of God's people enjoying the fullness of the salvation that he received late in life. And so we, we thank you for that, and we thank you for Brian's ministry, and we pray for Brian's comfort and strength. And now would you continue to strengthen each of us and embolden each of us as we come to this word, make us hopeful, make us to delight, and prepare us by this word to delight in the communion and fellowship of Christ that we will participate in at the end of the service. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
when we are in crisis, we do not always think well. We do not always think rightly when we're in crisis. And the disciples of Jesus Christ, for all that they were and for all the ways that God used them, were no different than us. On one occasion, Jesus took the disciples on a boat trip. And they went across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee was well known to numerous of the disciples who had spent their they're all their years um, working on the Sea of Galilee. They were well acquainted with it. They knew where all the fishing holes were, and they knew how to handle the sea, or so they thought. Seemingly, as soon as they were under the way, underway, the text doesn't tell us this, but I assume Jesus kind of stretched his arms out and said, Guys, I'm kind of weary. I'm going to go down to the bottom of the boat and take a nap. And he went down to the bottom of the boat and fell fast asleep. And while he was sleeping, a tremendous storm rose up on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. The winds come up over the mountains, come down into the sea basin, and create these massive storms that are well known. And they knew you don't want to be in the boat when a storm comes. And they were in a boat. And Jesus is just snoozing away while the storm is raging. And they're bailing water, and they're bailing water, and they're bailing water, and the waves are coming in faster than the buckets are going out. And the text doesn't tell us, but I think we are, we are supposed to assume that, that the ship's sinking was a very real possibility. And so they're bailing, and they're bailing, and they're not making headway. They're losing ground, and they think they're going down And so in desperation, they go down into the hold where Jesus was still asleep and woke him and said this, Mark 4.38, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? We're dying here. Don't you care? It's an astounding question. They're asking their Creator, who knit them together, every molecule of their beings, knowing every pathway of every nerve and every blood vessel in their bodies, knowing exactly how they were wired, not just physically, but spiritually. And they had the audacity to ask the question, don't you care? They ask the creator of the universe, the one who has made all things in all places, the one who has made every sparrow, who knows where every sparrow on earth is. Every sparrow that has ever existed on earth has known exactly where it has been and has cared for it and provided food for it. And they ask him, don't you care? Before we accuse the disciples of folly, we should acknowledge that their response is not atypical. When people suffer, they tend to complain, not just to God, but at God. It's your fault. Don't you see what's happening? Don't you care about me? Won't you provide? How can you give up? This whole thing is useless. I give up on you, is the inference. And it seems that 
Something of that level of despair is behind what the psalmist is writing in Psalm 119 in the stanza to which we turn this morning. We want to look this morning at verses 153 to 160. And this is a a lament psalm or a lament section, if you will. The whole psalm isn't a, a lament, but this particular section definitely has that tone of lament. There are repeated cries for help and there is a sense of urgency to them. I need your help. Won't you help? Aren't you watching? Aren't you listening? Don't you see? And he appeals to the Lord for help. We find pleas for help throughout this psalm, but it seems that that as the psalm progresses and as the psalm nears the end, that they that the desire for help increases even all the more. And in this particular stanza, the psalmist is not only affirming that he is suffering and that his life is difficult and troubled, but he is, he is one who is being oppressed by enemies. He is being attacked by those who are around him. We might even use the word persecuted. Two words dominate this section. It's the word look We find it in the very first word in the stanza, verse 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me. Three times he uses that word look as a request and a lament for God to consider his plight and his difficulty. And the other key word in this section is the word revive. Bring me to life. Act on my behalf. Look at me and act for me. So Spurgeon calls this passage the section A pleading passage. There seems to be a chiastic structure to this. Chiasm, you'll remember, is parallel statements that kind of form an X. So the first and the last statements align, the second and the next to last align, the third and and so on. And then there's a center section, and that center section is the point to which the author is going. And we find that structure here in this psalm. So verse 153, look and give me life. Verse 159, look and give me life. Same phrase essentially repeated in both those. So they're the bookends. And then one section in, the wicked don't care anything for your word. Verse 155. Uh, Similarly, verse 158, the faithless care nothing for your word. So the wicked and the faithless, those who are opposed to you, Don't care about you. Don't care about your word. Verse 156, the first line in 156, there are many compassions that come from you. And in the midst of that, there are many foes. So many compassions and many foes are put in contrast with one another, parallel and contrast. And then the center section, verse 156, so give me life. That's where he's going. I'm struggling I'm being persecuted. I'm being oppressed. I need your life. And that's where he is going. Even though suffering, even though afflicted, the psalmist here is adhering to God in his suffering. That's where we find him finally at the end. And so he will say it this way. When oppressed, be confident in God to see and respond to your need. When you are afflicted, notice we say when, 
Not if, like it might not be that you're afflicted, but when you're afflicted. In this world, there is suffering. In this world, there are trials. In this world, there is oppression. In this world, there are people who will hate you for your walk with Christ. And when you are there, be confident in God. He will see and He will respond to your need. The psalmist will give us three requests. will make three requests of God that will help us in our own lament and our own suffering and our own oppression. Three requests that he makes when he is oppressed by enemies and we are served well when we make similar requests of God when we are oppressed, when we are suffering. The first request is made in verse 153 and then bleeds into verse 154. Lord, consider my afflictions Consider my afflictions. Notice he says, 153, look upon my affliction. And when he asks the Lord to look on his afflictions, to look at his afflictions, he's asking because he is suffering. This life is hard. And that the word afflictions that's used here is a broad word that can refer to all kinds of different difficulties, trials. It, typically, it refers to a needy condition. I I need help. I can't get out of this on my own. I'm, I'm struggling and I don't know how I can't get out on my own. Very often it's used just for the, the general afflictions of living in a broken and fallen world. Things happen in this world that are harsh and hard and it can be used in that way. But I think he's doing something else here. It's not just afflictions in general, but it is a particular kind of affliction. It is the kind of affliction that comes from being persecuted. And so notice in the next verse, verse 154, he will say, plead my cause. And that's a, that's a legal phrase. Plead my cause. Be my defender. Be my legal advocate. In other words, he says, I have a legal response here. I have, I have a legal standing. I'm, I'm being treated wrongly. Someone has done me wrong and, and, and I need a defender. And that, that attack from which he, for which he needs legal defense is coming from, verse 157, persecutors and adversaries, people who are persecuting him, people who are adverse to him, people who are his enemies, people who are against him. That idea of persecution is not uncommon in this psalm. It's repeated numerous times. Flip back just a page or two to verse 98. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have enemies. They are opposed to me. They are opposed to what I would do, and they are against me. How are they against me? Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me. They have seek to entrap me so that I will fail and so that I will fall. 122, be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. And it seems that that idea of oppression and entrapment and ensnarement and enemies is what's being addressed here. I'm, I'm being afflicted by others, oppressed by others. And, and we do well to recognize that the psalmist's condition is not unusual. A sad reality of this world is that we will experience hurt from those who should care for us. That's a reality. It's not unusual. Some will take when they should give. In interacting with sinners, 
will be costly, tremendously costly at times. So the psalmist is being afflicted and look how he responds. 153, look on my affliction. Look at me. When the psalmist says look, it's a generic word for look. He doesn't just mean look, right? He's not just saying observe my condition. He's asking God to be interactive. He's he's asking God to, to, to intervene in his situation. Not just looking, but looking and acting. We find that this identical usage of the word way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is about uh, to go to be sacrificed. And God says, excuse me, Abraham says to him to assure him and to comfort him. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That word provide is the word see. God will see for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. He'll look and he'll provide. And that's exactly what the psalmist is asking here. He says, God, will you look at my situation and will you act on it? Specifically, he asks, will you look at my affliction and rescue me? Will you pull me out of the pit? And when he makes that request, he's acknowledging, I can't do it. I'm in a situation out of which I cannot extract myself. I am wholly dependent on you. So will you see, will you evaluate, and will you respond to my trouble? It almost sounds audacious, doesn't it? I mean, who's the psalmist to say, God, I I need your help. And in fact, what we find through this, and I'll draw attention to it in just a minute, is a series of imperatives. He's commanding God, rescue me. On what basis can the psalmist say, in so many words, and he doesn't say it, and I don't think this is an inference, but it almost sounds this way, you owe me. How can he say it? Look upon my affliction and rescue me. Notice the next line. For, because I do not forget your law. Again, he doesn't mean, I have a mental remembrance of your law. I remember that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and I remember all of the contents of that. That's not what he means, is it? He means, I remember to do your law. I remember what your law says, and I have been faithful to that law And I have been faithful to you. Here's what he's saying. I've been faithful to you. I have relationship with you. I have fellowship with you. So I'm appealing to you, the one who has fellowship with me, the one who is united to me. In the New Testament, we would say we are in Christ. We're united to Christ. Christ is our head. And we appeal to him because he's our head and he cares for his body. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. Would you care for me because I belong to you? It's kind of like your kids. Whether your kids are like down here 
two, three years old or they're up here and you're looking up to them and they're fully grown and they're out of the house and they come to you and say, Dad, I need help. Well, what do you need, son? Well, I've got this decision to make and I've got to do this and I'm, you know it has some financial implications and I'm not sure how it's all going to work out. Well, son, how can I help you? Well, I need this and this and this and this. It's done. I'll take care of it. Why do you do that? Because it's your son. And you love to give to your children. Whether they're little and all they need is a bowl of cereal, or they're 35 and they need counsel out of a very difficult situation in which they have found themselves. Why do you care for them? Because they're your children. Why does the Father in heaven care for the psalmist? Because he's his child. It's the nature of God to care. And so the psalmist says, when I'm in trouble, where will I go? I go to the Lord and I can appeal to him to rescue me, to care for me, to sustain me because I belong to him and he's my daddy. Verse 154 parallels what he has said in verse 153. He says, plead my cause and redeem me. Plead my cause is that legal term. It means I need a defense attorney. I need someone who can stand against my accusers. He's asking the Lord to be his vindicator. Would you, would you be to my defense attorney and vindicate me against those who have oppressed me? And not just vindicate me, but would you be my kinsman redeemer? Would you buy me out of it? Would you pay for the thing that has ensnared me so that I'm removed from this? And redeemed. And again, it has this, this kinsman redeemer idea that we find in, in the book of Ruth particularly. And we, are, we, we note this. He's not just asking for a redeemer in general. He's asking for a close relation to redeem him. It's got to be a family member. And so he goes to God as the closest family member and says, You are my only hope. Will you buy me out of this situation? And would you make things Right for me. And then he says, And having redeemed me, would you revive me according to your word? And this is the first time he uses that phrase. He'll use it twice more in this stanza. That word revive me simply means would you give me life or would you give me life again? It can have that sense of bringing back to life and we're... I think prone to thinking, well, maybe he's talking here about spiritual life and spiritual renewal. So he's talking perhaps about spiritual salvation. That's certainly a possibility. But I think he has something much more simple in mind here. I think he simply means something like, would you help me to enjoy life again? Would you make life, the life that you have granted to me, would you make it satisfying, gratifying, encouraging, hopeful? And how will he do that? Would you make life satisfying to me? Would you revive me in this life according to, by means of, your word? The means that God will use to bring the psalmist to life, to bring him to enjoyment of life, is the word of God. There is spiritual life. There is sustenance. There is hope. 
And there is joy in this book. And that's how the psalmist appeals to the Lord. Would you, would you renew me as I am in this book? Would you renew me and give me satisfaction? Insert comment about, in order to be revived by the Word, you've got to be in the Word, don't you? You have to know the Word. You have to know what it says. You need to know how it's applied to your circumstances and your situation. And you need to be thinking about it and meditating on it and longing after it. Listen, brothers and sisters. We cannot always improve our circumstances. There are things that will happen in life. There are difficulties and trials and burdens. And we can't change that. But we can experience joy in the midst of our difficulties. Because, what, because of what is revealed to us in our troubles. Listen to what Jesus' brother, half-brother James says in his letter, James 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. How? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, that is, mature, lacking in nothing. And so James says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials. There's joy to be had in the trial. We can't necessarily change the circumstance, but there can be joy in the midst of that circumstance, and that is exactly what the psalmist is asking for. Revive me. Give me life. Give me satisfaction. Give me contentment, peace, joy in my suffering and in my affliction. So in his suffering, the psalmist laments. He considers, he asks God to consider his afflictions. He asks God to look at his circumstance, his plight, and ask for him and asks him, God, to help him, the psalmist. And then secondly, he asks not only, Lord, consider my afflictions, he also asks this, Lord, consider my afflictors. Consider my afflictors. Verses 155 to 158. Four verses, the middle four verses in this section. And these verses are permeated with a revelation of who his oppressors and afflictors are. So three of these four verses are, are consumed with explaining those who are opposed to him. Verse 155, salvation is far from the wicked. Salvation is, is eternally far removed from the wicked. Those who are wicked have no hope of salvation. It's not just far, it's infinitely far is the inference. It is far away from the wicked. The wicked cannot be saved on their own. They are not like you because they do not seek your statutes. They are culpable of their sin. That's their wickedness. It's not just that they do wicked things, but they are culpable. They are guilty of wickedness. They are infinitely distanced away from God. They have not fellowshiped with him and they give evidence of the fact that they are not in fellowship with him and they are culpable and they are guilty because notice what he says in the second line they do not seek your statutes they are not interested in following or even knowing about the binding statutes and truth of God's word they want their own form of truth so that they can do whatever they want so they can be distanced from God so that they can be freed and liberated from God's 
quote-unquote, tyranny from their lives. We, we see this throughout the Scriptures, but just consider Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, verse 1, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And they have all turned aside and together they have been corrupt, become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. They just, they don't, they don't seek God. They don't desire God. They don't long for God. They're not pushing after God. They're not seeking after Him. They're not longing for Him. In fact, it's all just the opposite. They want to get as far away from Him, from everything that He commands, everything that, they, that He says as they can. And then in their sin, notice this, verse 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. In their sin, they have become the psalmist's personal personal persecutors and personal adversaries. Notice the pronoun, many are my persecutors, my adversaries. It's not just that they persecute people in general. It's they are persecuting this psalmist in particular. They're after him. It's not just that they don't like followers of God in general. It is that they hate him. And they're after his downfall, his destruction. So that the attacks that he's facing are not just the attacks of living in a fallen world. And we all face that every single day. But they are the particular attacks against him of derision and mocking and persecution with him as the bullseye target. They want him. They're treacherous. Verse 158. They're untrustworthy deceivers. That's what treachery means. And they're seeking to entrap him. Notice the last part of 158. They do not keep your word. Again, they're, they're disobedient. They're rebellious. They're going their own way. They're attempting to, to suppress the word of God and the truth of God so that they can do what they want apart from God. And these are the characteristics of the ones who are attacking the psalmist. They are guilty and they are far away from God, from his salvation and his truth. We just look at it, Lord. Would you consider these people? So that's the description of those who are against him. 155, 157, 158. Notice the contrast in 156. And the psalmist points in contrast to these who are opposed to him, to his own life, to his own longings. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Great are your mercies. Notice that he uses the plural. He doesn't say great is your mercy, as in you're a merciful God, which is a true statement. But he says great are your mercies. That is, you are repeatedly merciful and you have poured out multiplied mercies that are uncountable towards me. I've seen your mercy. I've experienced your mercy. And it's been abundant in how you have graced it towards me. It is to say that God is compassionate and he's comforting. 
It is to say what Paul would say. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He is a God who dispenses mercies and in that giving of mercy in our need, He comforts us. He cares. He's compassionate towards us. Like a mother caring for a newborn child, God cares for His own. Now watch this. Verse 157, Many are my persecutors... But before that, he says in 156, great are your mercies. And the inference is, however many persecutors, you give a mercy to match it and surpass it. Whatever attacks I face, there is mercy sufficient from you to cover that attack, to provide for me in that attack. However numerous... God's mercies are more and His mercy is more powerful. He is sufficient. And so seeing the fact that God is not just merciful in general, but abundant and lavish in the dispensing of His mercy, His kindness, His grace towards Him, He says at the end of 156, revive me according to your ordinances. Again, He, he makes... He makes this appeal that God would revive him, that God would sustain him. And he can make that appeal because 157, I do not turn aside from your testimonies. So those who are opposed to me, they've gone far afield from you. But I have not turned aside from you. I delight to do your will. He says something similar in verse 51. The arrogant utterly deride me, yet I do not turn aside from your law. And the implication is that if he would move aside, if he would, if he would turn away from following after God, if he would not be so rigid in his obedience of God, if he would just lighten up about this whole religion thing, that the oppression would stop. And he says, they mock me, they deride me, they persecute me, yet I will not turn aside. They're tempting me, compelling me, pulling at me to leave you, and I will not. I'm wholeheartedly committed to you. It is is the same thing that is said in Joshua 1, verse 7, where God says to Joshua, as Joshua takes the mantle from Moses... And now he's the solitary leader of this vast group of people. He says only be strong and very courageous. Be very careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. How careful? Do not turn aside from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Don't deviate in the slightest and then you'll have success. If you deviate... You're giving up the opportunity to success and prosperity spiritually. Don't deviate. And this is exactly what the psalmist is saying in 157. I've not turned aside. I've not deviated. Just as Joshua was faithful, I am faithful in keeping your word. And so he says, revive me. Bring me to life. 
Because God is compassionate. Because God is one who dispenses mercy so lavishly. The psalmist appeals to him for revival, for joy. And notice again, 156. He uses the imperative, revive me. He's commanding God. Now we understand that he's not actually directing God, but, but, but it has the sense of urgency. So he doesn't just say, will you revive me? Making it a request, but he is saying with the imperative, the only hope I have for joy in this life and new life on this earth is if you will invigorate me with your joy. You're the only hope I have. If you don't do it, no one will. No one can. I need help and I need you. This phrase reminds us that the joy is to be found in the Word of God as well. Notice he says, revive me again according to your ordinances. It's, it's virtually the same as what he says in 154. He says there, revive me according to your word. Both of them affirm the reality that revival and hope and joy and satisfaction is going to come through the word of God. And here he says, not just the word of God in general, but your ordinances, your, your judgments, the means by which you rightly evaluate God's people. That's where joy is to be found. You make your evaluations and you make your judgments and you write and decree according to those judgments and then, as I follow that, then I will have life. It's a reminder that Scripture alone contains the joy that is to be had in this life. If we want joy, we've we've got to find it here We've got to come here and nowhere else. So the psalmist will say in verse 25, my soul cleaves to the dust. I feel like a dead man. And then he says, revive me according to your word. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. And verse 88 and 93 and 107 and 149 and now 156, your word is my life. Where else are you going to go? You're going to open up your web browser to CNN or Fox News for life? You're supposed to laugh at that. You can go pluck a newspaper or a magazine off the rack at Kroger this afternoon and find life and hope there. No, life and hope has to be found in the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, this is why David Gibson has spent the better part of three decades in Papua New Guinea because of this commitment to say, this is where life is. This is where hope is. This is what's going to invigorate people. Lord, consider my afflictors. He is reminding us that there are genuine sufferings in this world. He asks God to consider the afflictions he's facing, the nature of those who are afflicting him. He's asking for protection in the midst of that. 
And then thirdly, notice this last request. Lord, consider my affections. Afflictions, afflictors, affections. I wish I could say that that was, those were my words. I found that in a commentary and I found that really helpful. Um, I tweaked the rest of it, but I like the way he laid that out. Lord, consider my affections. Notice verse 159. Consider how I love your precepts. So this whole psalm, this whole stanza rather, has been all about the difficulties in, the trials he's in, the persecution, the suffering, the oppression. And when he gets to the end, all that talk stops. Verses 159 and 160, there's no talk about suffering. There's no talk about oppressors. There's no talk about persecutors. There's only talk about his affections and his desires. And so he has said, Verse 153, consider, look at my affliction and rescue me. Verse 158, he has said, I behold the treacherous. I, I look at the treacherous. I look at those who are opposed to you. And, and there's an inference there. Would you look at them as well? Would you evaluate them and would you judge them appropriately? And now in verse 159, there's a final use of the word look when he says, consider That's that same word, look, look at, evaluate, consider, contemplate how I love your precepts. He doesn't just obey the word of God. He loves the word of God. He doesn't just do what God says. He is drawn to it. He finds delight in it. He finds joy in it. You see, true obedience is always marked not just by conformity to the standard that God sets, but love for the standard and love for the one who sets the standard. So we obey not just because we have to. We obey because we love the one who has established the standard. And you find this all through this psalm. Verses 47, 48. 97, 113, 119, 127, 132, 140. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. 159, we've just seen that. 163, we'll see this in January. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. And 165 and 167, on and on and on. I don't just do your word. I love your word. I embrace your word. I long for your word. And because of that delight, he asks again for a third time, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. Previously he said, revival comes through your word. Now he says, revival comes according to your loving kindness, your loyal love, your grace. And he's using that term loving kindness, I think synonymously with your your word, with the scriptures. God's grace is dispensed through his scriptures. And why would he cling to those things? Why would he appeal to those things? Verse 160, because the sum of your word is truth. Why does he love the word of God? Why is he drawn to this word? Because the word is truth. The totality of God's revelation is truth. There is nothing in his revelation that is not truth. The true word emanates from the true God. He cannot do anything but speak the truth. And 
as I was working through this passage this week, I was thinking, I wonder if this was in Jesus' mind in John 17, 17, the high priestly prayer. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Was Jesus thinking about this verse? I can't help but think that he was. Some of your word is truth. Everything in this word is true. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't reveal everything. It won't tell you how to fix your car or computer, but everything it tells you is the truth. You can depend on it. It is right and true in every circumstance. It is imperishable and it will produce life. It will produce joy. It's not just truth. He says in the first line, in the last line, he says, every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It's always right and it's always true. It's right and it's eternal. So in his suffering, the psalmist laments, God, would you look at me? Would you look at my trouble? Would you look at those who are opposed to me? Would you look at those who are afflicting me? And then would you consider me and would you consider my affections? Let's see one more thing that the psalmist is doing here. He is encouraging us to remember God when we are afflicted. To remember God when we are afflicted. Earlier I said we we cannot always improve our circumstances or have our circumstances improved for us. But we can always have joy in our circumstances. And joy comes from seeing the God who is behind the circumstances. And though the psalmist has not been explicit, he has revealed much about the nature and the character of God in this stanza. Let me just run through a few of them. Verse 153, God is a caretaker and he is a savior and he is a lawgiver. Verse 154, he is advocate. He is kinsman redeemer. He is life giver. Verse 156, he is judge. He is mercy mercy giver. He is covenant keeper. Verse 159, he is teacher. Also 159, he is a loyal Lord. Verse 160, he is a truth speaker. And all of these ways, the psalmist is drawing our attention as well as his own heart back to the nature and character of God and saying, he's dependable and his word is dependable. Even when you're suffering, even when you're oppressed, even when you're attacked, you can trust him. And so here are some questions for us. Where are you going for your life and your comfort? What is your refuge? Where is your hope? Are you going to the Lord as the psalmist did? Or are you going somewhere else? Is your lament joyful? That is, are you dependent on God? And are you dependent on His Word for your joy in your trouble? Or, as we are prone to be, are you fixated on having your trouble removed so that life can become easy? And then, lastly, when suffering, do we still love God's Word? Do we not just obey, but do we perceive God's Word as being good and good for us in that situation?
or situations or troubles or trials may not be removed. But God will care for us in those trials and He does it substantially through His Word to make us to lean on it and be transformed by it. Thank you, Father, for this reminder from Your Word about Your Word. Might we find encouragement, hope, confidence, joy in you and in this word as we face our troubles. This world is trouble-filled. People hate righteousness and they hate righteous people and they hate you. And so we will be hated. And when we are hated and when we are oppressed, might we lean into you Might we lean into your word and find it and you to be our source of joy. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.